Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, a brand new support and membership community that I created in order to help people build a life they love despite rheumatic disease. I'll be teaching you how to develop your own Thrive Toolkit, which is the exact process I use to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis. Check out the show notes to learn more. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for coming on the Arthritis Life podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yay. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where do you live and anything else you want to share? So my name is Jamie. I'm 29 years old and I live in Gloucestershire in England. Um, I work as a freelance uh, writer. I live with my husband. We've been married for nearly six years, together for eight. And we have a four-year-old daughter called Harper, a four-month-old son called Kit. And we also have two dogs called Dylan and Theo. (laughs) Oh, those are wonderful names. (laughs) you know, in your story, I want to start by how did you get diagnosed? So like many people, it's quite a a longish story. Um, In summer, I haven't had my diagnosis too long. I've had it coming up for two years. But so in summer 2018, 
my daughter was coming up to two. I'd never had any issues with my joints or anything like that. And suddenly all my fingers swelled and they were so painful to touch. And even just simple tasks like changing my daughter's nappy was so difficult. So I booked in to see uh, my GP and like what happens with many things when you're sick, by the time I went to my appointment, everything had gone, like all my swellings had gone, everything was back to normal again. And, you know, they sort of just wrote it off as like, maybe it was one of those things, you know, um, they did a blood test. It came back as everything was being normal. So I sort of went on my way. Then I was fine for a couple more months. And in around November time of that year, I started to get some issues with my neck and my spine. And I was having a lot of pain in my neck and it sort of got worse and worse. And I went to see an osteopath. I went to see a chiropractor. Nothing was making it any better. Uh, and the issues with my fingers came back not as bad but slightly and so I went back to my GP and again I was sort of fobbed off as like you know you've got a two-year-old maybe it's that you know da, 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 da. so I started doing my own research um and rheumatoid arthritis just kept coming up coming up over and over and over again uh, it kind of freaked me out because I think when you read about it it can be a bit doom and gloom can't it I was like oh my gosh like I really hope it's not this um Anyway, so I went back to my GP and when I sort of put this potential diagnosis in front of him, he sort of laughed at me and said, you know, it's, it's not that you don't have that. And before this point, I'd never known there was a difference between rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis. I just thought arthritis was something that older people got and it was through like wear and tear. Um, and he, he again, like said to me, you know, you're, you're far too young to have that. So off you go. And I kind oh of believed God. him. I know. But again, That's everything kept getting worse. Um, to the point where I was literally bed bound, like I couldn't even get out of bed. And um, one morning I had a really bad night and I'd been throwing up all night and I genuinely couldn't move. So in the UK, we have this helpline called it's a 111 and you can ring it to sort of get like medical advice. So I phoned it and they were kind of concerned by what I was saying. So they sent a ambulance out to me and the guy in the ambulance gave me morphine just so I could get myself back to the GP. And so I, my husband took the day off. He sort of like, you know, I shuffled into the car, even on morphine. I was in a lot of pain and I saw a different GP. And again, this guy just didn't believe me. And he, he when I had my daughter, I had postpartum anxiety and he brought that up as if like what was going on was in my head. Oh, and even my no. husband was sat there like, what the heck? Like, this is just insane. And at this point I started and again I went home and I started to get really frightened because I thought everyone thinks I'm making this up like everyone thinks this isn't real and like what I've read about rheumatoid arthritis it's progressive and you know if you don't get it treated it causes like more damage and da 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 and so I just I was getting so stressed so anxious and in the end my mum said look I will pay for you to go and see a private rheumatologist um because obviously the healthcare system in the UK is a bit different because we have the NHS so to right. get in front of a rheumatologist you usually have to be referred by your GP so my mum paid it was an obscene amount of money um and within 10 minutes of me being with her like thank goodness she diagnosed me with psoriatic arthritis which is really similar to rheumatoid um but it involves your skin as well so your immune yeah. system also attacks your skin um yeah, yeah, so that was my diagnosis. And that was in April 2019. And I think like many people, when I got my diagnosis, I was like pretty devastated and also kind of relieved because mm -hmm. when you've got a diagnosis, you can hopefully work towards treating it and making it more manageable. So yeah. Yeah. I didn't know our stories were so similar down to the 
point where my mom also hired like a private in our, no in our country. <laughs> yeah, they it's called them um, concierge doctor here where it's, it's still like a primary care, which is our version of GP. Like, um, the primary care is like your gatekeeper to the rheumatologist yeah. and else still, but you can hire a concierge doctor, which will then kind of be your personal doctor for like 24 hours a day. You can, but she even uh-huh. then thought that I was, um, too anxious. Like I brought her my, I took, made a symptom tracker and I was tracking like what I was eating, what I was doing. And when I was feeling the worst and she was like, you're just hyper vigilant about your health. But then eventually my joints got worse. And then she figured out when you've had that kind of traumatizing experience, it's just, my heart goes out to you because that is, I I can't imagine. I, I got diagnosed when I was 20, 20 years old, which, you know, some people say, oh, it's so hard when you're so young. But at the same time, if I was also having to deal with being a mom to a two-year-old during that time, I think it would have been so much, you know, anyway, you can't compare suffering. Suffering is just hard, no, right? hard. And I, I hear that from quite a few women, actually, that like initially yeah. they sort of were looking more at like mental health rather than yeah. physical. And I just, it makes me really angry. Me too. And the little, the little feminist hat goes on. I think, would they do the same to a man? Like, would they ask a man if it was in his head? <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I mean, and the other thing is that I now I have gone through therapy for some anxiety that I've developed over the years that some related to my health, some just like I get claustrophobic, for example. So I've gone through therapy for that. But, you know, what I've realized is that I don't understand why the doctors don't under, don't see anxiety as a natural consequence to living in pain mm-hmm. and living in not having an answer. Like, why wouldn't you be anxious? But then it makes, when you have this experience of having these physical symptoms, plus you're anxious about them, understandably, because no one's listening to you and no one's believing you, you get in this really awkward position that that's so tenuous when you go to a doctor's appointment and you're like, I need them to believe me. And I, I am anxious about this. I need them to know that it's like serious, but I can't seem too anxious because then they're going to be like, she's just anxious. Yeah, so, it's really hard, isn't it? Oh, my so- anxiety like really did soar following my diagnosis. And I ended up getting a diagnosis also of generalized anxiety disorder. But I, I don't think it would have happened if it wasn't for the battle I had to get to, to yeah. get the right care that I needed. So, and I'm sorry, I think I referred to you as having rheumatoid arthritis earlier, but yeah, psoriatic arthritis, which you can have psoriasis without arthritis, or you can have psoriatic mm-hmm. arthritis, which some people get confused about. Um, so you have joint symptoms and skin. Yeah. yeah so my psoriasis died when I was 17, um, but it never, I, I never had it bad. Like it never really bothered mm-hmm. me. It was never an issue. I didn't even see it as like living with an issue because it was, mm-hmm. it's always been so mild. Um, and it's funny because one doctor that I saw amidst all of my um, trying to get a diagnosis, he sort of took my entire life history and he kept he wrote right at the top psori- psoriasis at 17. And I was like, why is he writing that down? Like, because I also had eczema. I had eczema way worse. And I was like, why is he writing down about my eczema? Um, mm. And it's because at that time I didn't know psoriatic arthritis existed, but I think it had started to spike his radar. It's funny because one of the GPs is still at my practice, and on the occasions I've seen him for different things now, he's always so nice to me, <laughs> and he's like completely opposite to how he treated me, you know, the first time around. And I kind of hope, therefore, he has learned something from it because obviously he can see that yeah. I did go forward to get that diagnosis. And he's actually like now very like respectful. And if I say like, I'm thinking this might be happening, he's like, okay. And he really listens to me. Um, So I hope like he has learned something from that experience. 
a lot of times we end up going to different doctors, right. To get our diagnosis. So I'm glad that you're able to still see that, that doctor. Um, so I, I think it's fascinating that you had one pregnancy. So you're four months postpartum, by the way. So let's yeah. give you a, a moment of appreciation that you're willing to be on this <laughs> podcast because like, this is like, I remember every moment when I, my son was four months old, it was like, I could be doing something productive or I could try to take a nap. So yeah. I appreciate naps that. For yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. Naps for life. Oh my gosh. So, um, but so you've had one pregnancy before rheumatoid arthritis or before psoriatic arthritis and one after. So I'm guessing a lot of people are going to wonder what was your second pregnancy like? Obviously just the decision to have a baby was a really big one. And I'm sure many people will resonate with that. So I, the first med I was put on was sulfasalicine and it, it kind of worked for me for a little bit and then it kind of didn't work that well for me. And I don't know what it's like in the US. So in the UK, you have to fail on two DMARDs at least before you can be put forward for a biologic. It's obviously there similar. aren't, yeah, yeah. so obviously there aren't that many pregnancy safe DMARDs. So my, because because we were, you know, thinking of wanting a baby, my rheumatologist was really reluctant to change my meds until we sort of had the baby, which is obviously stressful in itself, because I thought, what if it takes me years to get pregnant? Like, you don't know, do you? Um, right. But it kind of pushed us into, okay, like, if we want to try for a second baby, like, let's just do it. And I had all those things I think many of us have, like, I really worried about how I'd cope with two. Obviously, I was still really new in my condition, too. So I didn't know what, well, I still don't know, like, what the future will look like for me and how much the disease will like affect me and stuff so it was really tough and it again it probably exacerbated all the anxiety that I was already thinking because I'm a mass overthinker anyway Mm -hmm. um but we sort of made the decision to take the plunge and I think this similar thing happened to you actually because I listened to some of your earlier podcasts I fell pregnant straight away like immediately and really similar thing what you said I sort of thought like but my body is really angry and hates me. Like how, yeah. how have I got good fertile health? Like this is insane. Um, yes, you yeah. know, I'm on all these drugs now and yeah. Uh, so that was strange, but yeah, so I felt pregnant. So it was really frustrating in the January. I started having quite a bad knee flare and I fell pregnant in the February and obviously the coronavirus started and mm. the UK went into complete lockdown a month after I found out I was pregnant. So my pregnancy was really crazy on many levels. Um, my knee, for the first sort of few months of my pregnancy, gave me a lot of bother. Um, obviously, I couldn't take many painkillers because of being pregnant. And all you could really do was go for walks, which is not very easy <laughs> when your knee is really swollen and painful. So I did find it really tough um, the first few months. But when I got to six months pregnant, I went into remission. Uh, which was just amazing. Although at the flip side, I'd always said I didn't want to go into remission because I didn't want to be reminded of what it was like to, it's really sad to not be in pain all the time. Um, But I did go into remission and it was wonderful. And I stayed in remission until about a week ago (laughs) when everything started to rear its ugly little head again. So yeah, so I had a good period of remission. The one benefit from it was that I had quite a I want to say traumatic that's a bit of a big word I had quite a difficult c-section with my son so I had a cesarean section done under general anesthetic um and I guess not having my arthritis be an issue meant I could fully focus on recovering from my c-section although then once my c-section sort of recovered my arthritis was like I'm back (laughs) isn't it it really is like they take their health issues just take turns sometimes you know yeah (laughs) Uh, but 
Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that you've, you're having now the, the symptoms are coming back, but I'm glad you were able to experience that pregnancy remission and postpartum too. Um, I know, yeah, your, your, the birth of your, um, second child was just completely like a little bit scary. Is that a good word for it? Or yeah. So he spent um, time in the NICU after he was born. Like it was, yeah, it's not the birth that anybody wants. <laughs> yeah. I know that people might ask, want to know feed. Are you breastfeeding? And if you are, are you taking medications? That was one of the questions. So I'm breastfeeding. I was on self-salacine. I stayed on self-salacine throughout my whole pregnancy okay. and I'm still on self-salacine now. Um, so my next issue though, is that because my disease wasn't very well controlled pre-pregnancy, my rheumatologist told me it would probably come back with a bit of a vengeance and I probably wouldn't be able to stay on sulfasalacine. And when that did happen, they'd want me to move on to methotrexate. Mm -hmm. So methotrexate is obviously not pregnancy safe and it's not breastfeeding safe. So I'm struggling mm -hmm. a bit with that at the moment because um, obviously I'm flaring. My knee is pretty angry. My fingers, everything's a bit stiff again. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking I probably need to go on to methotrexate soon, but mm -hmm. it's definitely cutting my breastfeeding journey much shorter than I wanted. So I breastfed my daughter till she self-weaned when she was 14 months. Yeah. And I just really hope to do the same for Kit. It's really tough, isn't it? And, I, you know, in, in my head, I'm also thinking, yeah, but both my children need to have me healthy. You know, that's that's yeah. best for everybody. But that still doesn't really soften the blow. <laughs> so right now I'm being a bit stubborn and I'm sort of hoping my flare might calm itself down on its own. But mm -hmm. my rheumatologist wasn't too hopeful that it would just because things weren't controlled before I went into pregnancy remission. So we'll see. The decisions that you have to make around breastfeeding, it's like it's a good, I guess, metaphor for how difficult it can, you know, these decisions, it's not just about is X, Y, or Z safe for the baby? It's a complicated, it's like a family system, right? You have another child that you need to be there for, and mm -hmm. you have your new child. And then, you know, obviously breastfeeding is the best for the nutrition of the current, of the youngest child, but does that outweigh the benefit to you of being more well-controlled and more present potentially for both children and your own mental well-being. I mean, it's just so complex, isn't it? And it's really tough. I think because he's my second born too, I feel like he should get everything my first born got. So because I did it for Harper, I'm like, it's really unfair that I didn't do it for Kit. Um, and I'm also thinking like when I'm flaring, I couldn't imagine getting up and making bottles <laughs> in the middle of the night. So oh. like it is easy, isn't it? You know, once sort of you've established breastfeeding, it's I was going to ask actually, cause I do remember now I only was able to breastfeed for 10 weeks. Cause then I, I got mastitis four times <laughs> and, oh. and it was terrible. I, I did have some pain with the positions of breastfeeding sometimes. So, um, have you found like comfortable, like what are some of the comfortable positions you found? Like how do you hold him or do you do like sideline or do you hold him? Like, a, do you know what I mean? Like across your body, yeah, yeah. do you switch it up? How does that work? So I tend to do like across my body and I use a boppy pillow, you know, those pillows nice. like, a donut, like a half donut. Yeah. Um, and again, that has been a benefit of the pandemic because the, so the UK, like, we're still in lockdown, like you're not really allowed to do mm -hmm. anything. So it has meant that like, I haven't really had to feed him out and about like mm -hmm. I did with my daughter, which I think in terms of my joints, it's actually been quite beneficial. Cause like, you know, when I want to feed him, I'll go up to my bed, my husband who's working from home, I can say, can you just carry him up for me? And yeah, lays him on the donut. So actually like it's, it's, it's all right on my joints, which is good. 
Oh, that's really good. Yeah. And I, I can attest because I did a lot of bottle feeding that, yeah, those little, um, as my friend who's who's British said, the, the fiddly bits, she calls them the fiddly, the little, fiddly bits. Yeah, 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 the fiddly bits are hard. One time I didn't squeeze it on tightly enough and I just put the bottle towards my son and the whole thing just opened up and poured onto his face oh, and his whole no. body. And I was like, ah, um, but you will, you will figure out alternative ways, kind of like if your thumb's hurting, you could hold it a different way. Um, but, but yeah, it's, I think the concept of trade-offs is something I think about a lot with living with these kind of rheumatic diseases, like you're trading, you know, trading your comfort for something else. Right. It's so hard when you're young, I think, because I'm really stubborn. So Things like the other day, I couldn't get the um, top off of the uh, washing machine cabinet, like the child safe lock, haven't they? Because oh, where yes. my fingers are involved, I literally couldn't get the top off. And my husband was stood right next to me. He's like, here, let me do it for you. And I was like, no, you know, I just didn't want him doing it. And it's a real adjustment, isn't it? To, and things like AIDS, like I've slowly started to accept AIDS into my home, like mm-hmm. to help me. But I kind of feel really bitter every new one that comes in. I'm like, ah, I don't want you here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I do think that the, you know, I'm an occupational therapist and we are like excited about these aids. Like when we're saying aids, we're talking about like adaptive equipment, things like, like a jar opener or like weird, like I have these weird scissors. This is going to be audio only, but I'm showing you them. <laughs> um, but yeah, we can't discount the fact that if you're, you know, you're age 29, you know, even me being 39, still consider myself kind of young, but I know I'm not that young anymore, but um you know, you don't, you want to be able to do things in the quote unquote, you know, normal way that someone else your age typically can, can do them. So I've tried a little bit to try to make, I, I joke, I'm trying to bring sexy back to the, to these different aids <laughs> through some of my videos. But anyway, I completely understand that. And I get the same exact frustration and I'm very stubborn too. So I'll just be like, and I'm literally, literally like, Cheryl, you are the person who like made a video about using the jar opener. Why aren't you just using it? But I'm like, I don't want to like take five <laughs> steps over to the, the, to the cupboard where the jar opener is like, it's just human nature. Sometimes we don't want to be inconvenienced and it, it's not just inconvenience. It's that it psychologically reminds you that you are not a hundred percent able-bodied. I like, I, I find it quite funny and also quite sad. Like sometimes my nan will like give me things that she finds helpful. <laughs> my mom is here. and My mom has to help me do something. I'm like, this is not right. This is the wrong way around. I know, I know but you know, it is, I, I think, you know, I've had this a little longer than you. I'm so old and wise No, but it is a matter over time. I think the acceptance does sink in that, you know, I can't, I can't say a magic word to, to bring that to you, but, you know, realizing that, you know, I think it's this balance between saying like grieving what you lost, you know, like this is, I didn't, I'm not having the experience as a 29 year old mother of two that I imagined I would have, you know, a few years ago. Right. But then at the same time, there's still a lot that you still can do, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. that you, so like kind of having gratitude. I, t- I think a lot about to myself about like, gratitude and grief. Like they're, they can kind of coexist. Like I grieve what I don't have, but I'm grateful for what I have. It's, but it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Grief is a really good, like, that's how I've seen it too. Like it's, you go through a massive grieving process, I think when you get diagnosed yeah. or many people do, I did. Um, and it's still very new for me. Like obviously I am approaching two years since diagnosis, but because of pregnancy, I had like six months in remission as well. So mm. really I've only had like 
active disease from diagnosis for like 18 months. So yeah. I'm still very much like learning, you know, what I can and can't do and the adaptations I need to make. Yeah, I'm still learning that adjustment. Yeah. And I I think when you're having that adjustment period while having a child that's continually growing and changing and and two children, I can imagine it's hard too, right? Because maybe what you're, you know, you might get your perfect plan set in place for a two-year-old and a five-month-old, but then they keep growing and changing and they Uh need different things. And so suddenly you're like, oh wait, now we're potty training and I need like to do this other action that I didn't have to do before. So it really is like, um, another concept that I think about a lot is adapting or adaptations. You have to constantly adapt. And there's not like, I think sometimes when you're first diagnosed, you kind of have this idea, like the end point, like, I'm just going to figure this out and then it will all be better. And then, but sometimes it's beneficial to think, okay, it's going to be like a continuous process of adaptation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like right now, obviously Kit isn't mobile. He's four months old. And I'm already like thinking ahead of like, oh my goodness, like how am I going to cope when he's crawling and walking around and he's like more of a risk to himself, you know, especially with my knees flaring. I've kind of like been spending a lot of time in bed or on the sofa. Mm -hmm. But I think you've also got to not think too far ahead, haven't you? You've got to like look at what's happening now work on this what works and then like you said we'll adapt when the next thing Mm -hmm. happens um yeah yeah so your condition right now um how is it affecting your ability to to parent your your older child yeah she's definitely the harder one than than my son at the moment um and it's just it's the mum guilt I think obviously so my knees are really swollen one in Mm -hmm. particular and my fingers are a bit stiff and it's little things like I can't get down on the floor and play with her again. So I, I, I couldn't when I was first unwell for quite a while. And then obviously pregnant put me into a remission. And I actually, even though I was heavily pregnant, I actually could do a lot more for her. Yeah. So a, a lot of my friends who were heavily pregnant would always moan about like how hard it was. And actually for me, it felt easier because my disease was in remission. Yes. Um, and again, like she, she'd learned before I was pregnant, the things I couldn't do. And then obviously a pregnancy is a really long time when you're four. So she's kind of forgotten what I was like before. But again, she's now having to learn again what mummy can't do. And that's kind of sad. So, you know, like things like she wants to play and I'll say like, can you can you bring it onto the bed or can we play at the table? And sometimes if she's like set up her little scene and she's like, I can't move it, mummy. And then I feel so guilty because and then she off, she's pretty good. Like she will. And again, things like at the moment, I can't take to the park because my knees are all swollen. There's not a lot else you can do. Like, so pre-coronavirus, I'd take it to soft play and I could like sit in the cafe while she had a whale at the time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, none of that's open at the moment here. So yeah, it's just tough, isn't it? And again, first thing in the morning, she'll come in and she, sometimes she's like, mommy, can you go make your breakfast? And I'm like, no, mommy needs a bit of time to like, you know, get herself going. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. You just watch your show for half an hour and then mummy can get downstairs and get you some food. But yeah, it's really tough and it's really hard not to let the mum guilt creep in. I think that's the worst. Mm-hmm. I think especially because I was a parent to her before I had my diagnosis and before I was unwell. So I yeah. kind of know the parent that I started at. You know, I was a real I still am, but I was like the kind of parent that would throw her above my head. And if we went soft play, I'd be like in the soft play with her and I'd climb the climbing Mm. frame with her and I can't do those things anymore. And it makes me kind of sad because I feel like I've had to really change the the kind of mum that I was and that I wanted to be Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and find an adaptation to compromise, I guess. Yeah, that is a completely, completely makes sense. You know, you had 
a certain life and it was basically, you know, taken from you. And even though you can choose to focus on, okay, what can I still do? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's still that grieving process. I think it's just, you know, I'm a big fan from, from my th- own therapy of just validating and allowing yourself to feel those feelings, you know, because so often we try to push them away and say, oh, well, I should be grateful because la la la. But, you know, I think it's healthy to, to process them, you know, and I know that people listening to your story is so many are going to relate, you know, to this idea of, um, of again, a future, it's like grieving a future that you kind of, not even that you just thought you would have just we kind of assume right as a young person you just kind of assume you're going to be yeah the same and things like how many how many children like I was wanted like three or four children and then Mm -hmm. just the thought of like maybe not even having a second that was really hard for me to process too because you know Mm -hmm. at one point I thought maybe we shouldn't have a second like maybe I I would made a cope or whatever um and I guess I'm still kind of there now because I'm thinking like I've got my two children they're both healthy like you know I'm really blessed should I think about having a third or should I not rock the boat and it's really tough because I'm also thinking about um you know having you know pregnancy is really big on your body anyway you know it's it's a big thing to go through and obviously some people do have quite big postpartum flares and I'm kind of hoping my postpartum flare now doesn't go absolutely wild and it just sort of stays where it is um and it's the thought that maybe your flair could do damage. So like, you know, I've got to think about the two children I've got and would it be selfish of me to have a third and maybe put myself more at risk and be able to do a bit less for them? Or it's just so tough, isn't it? And I mean, all those, I think having more children when you're able-bodied, I guess, is mm-hmm. it's a big decision anyway. But when yeah. you've got a chronic illness as well, for it's just a big thing to have to take into consideration. Yeah, and like medications. Obviously, if I go into methotrexate now, I'd have to then come off methotrexate yeah, I was going to say, I yeah. mean, so you can't, you can't go on a biologic yet because you haven't quote unquote failed two DMARDs. Oh, cause I was going to say so many of the biologics are safe during pregnancy. Are, yeah. So I'm like, I wish I could like, we could write a letter to someone and just be like, can you just give her a biologic? I know. I feel like, cause I did say to my rheumatologist, I was like, surely the fact that I'm breastfeeding, can't that just mean I failed my patrexate cause I can't have it. Yes. And she was like, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> damn (laughs) every single day I'm like if I ruled the world Um, so so hard and I mean I don't know if you feel the same so I had my child which I did I also did never ever imagined having an only child I always thought I would have at least two my husband and I are both middle children of three (laughs) both of us have an older brother younger sister but we both thought we were gonna have two and so I was 33 and my disease was very well controlled when I had Charlie but then postpartum it got really bad and then I had some other health issues but so by the time the other health issues started getting better I was like 37 and so at that point I'm also thinking like not only is this a decision about like everything that you mentioned it's also like I'm older you know so um, there's more complications potentially and I don't have as much energy just as a person not even as a person with autoimmune disease so that was a very very complicated decision as well but so you're I mean you're much younger you're 29 so you've got some time Um, but one of the things we had thought about I don't know if you guys thought about this but was spacing out the children larger space so that like when we were thinking we would have them four years apart um, when we were thinking about having another still. And just, just to be clear, I, the reason we didn't have another is not just rheumatoid arthritis in my case, even though I had a really horrible flare up. Um, I had like three other acute health issues happen over two years, like a car accident and a tailbone cyst, and then um, a stomach complete 
breakdown where my stomach became oh paralyzed. Yeah, it was, it was horrific. I just, there was no way there physically there, it was not safe. Like even all of my doctors were like, don't get pregnant. And then by the time that was better, again, I was, I felt it was hard. It was still a hard decision. Cause yeah, I'm very stubborn. So I was like, we'll just figure it out. And then I was like, no, actually I can't do this. But, um, I, I was thinking, we were thinking, my husband and I, that like four years would actually, four or five years apart could be good because then the older child can do more on their own. Have you found that with Harper? Like that, she, can she help at all? <laughs> or it's, really, it's funny you say that. So yes, she's really helpful and she's, she's very independent and she's just really empathetic. She's an incredible kid. Um, you know, if I say to her, can you just get this for mummy? Cause mummy's like hands hurt or whatever, you know, she'll do it. She, she's wonderful. But it's funny you say that because I feel really sad that I had such a big gap between my children. And I know that's like me probably overthinking things and it'll be fine. But I always think, oh, four years, like they're not going to be close. They're not going to be good friends when they're older. You know, they're going to be too far apart in age. Um, and I think if it, if it wasn't for my illness, I would have had a baby sooner so we were actually thinking about starting to try for a baby as my symptoms basically started so mm. for me it kind of like put me on hold by about two years um but I do yeah. feel really fortunate that I fell pregnant with him so quickly um yeah. yeah and if we had another I see like the sensibility in waiting another four years so that there's you know a good gap again but equally I'm like maybe let's just have another one like straight away <laughs> just and then deal with everything bad at the end <laughs> The month that I got the tailbone, I had this tailbone cyst and it just was, I had delayed wound healing and the whole thing was just a complete mess. But that month, like when I went under surgery for that, they were like, is there a chance you're pregnant? And I was like, that was the month we had started to try for another one. And, um, cause we did the same thing. We were like, I didn't, I, I, I felt like my RA had just gotten under control. And so we're like, okay, yeah. let's seize the moment. And fortunately that time we didn't get pregnant. Right. Because only I'm saying fortunately, because of the, um, having a tailbone, cyst surgery is like a big deal because it the area takes a long time to heal because there's not good yeah. vascularization there but we had exactly the same thought process like just because charlie was two at the time so we're like oh we kind of think like logically there's a case for waiting longer but we're like let's just get it over with you know um yeah, but yeah. i will say something that really comforted me when we were we were also grieving the idea of having children further apart was that one of my best friends has three and she said that her oldest and, and youngest have like a really special bond and there's five years between them. And she said that sometimes when there's a bigger age gap, they don't compete as much so they can have a different kind of relationship where they're still kind of the older one kind of protects the younger one. Right. And they can, they can develop a really special bond and siblings that are really close in age sometimes compete and argue more. So there's case exceptions to every rule, but I thought that wasn't, that was a good silver lining potentially. <laughs> yeah. There's pros and cons with all of it. Also, I don't know why I worry so much because my brother is 10 years older than me and we're close and we end up having mm. kids three years apart who are oh, close. Wow. I think it's just, it's, everyone sort of has a plan of how they see their life kind of panning out. And it's, yeah. if, if something like an illness has to deviate you from that, it's really hard because, you know, you never want, you want your decisions to be just your decisions because you made them and that's what's best, not because there's other factors that are, you know, affecting that. Um, exactly. Yeah. If we do have a third, I have to wait at least two years though, because I had a C-section. So oh, I guess yeah, that's, that's probably right. potentially a good thing because it's nice for to focus on one one child at a time when they're little. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciated what you said earlier about, you know, this idea that since you had two years with your first child before you had your condition start that 
now that you have your second, it's like, you want to be the same quote unquote, like the same mom that you were, because it doesn't seem fair to him Mm -hmm. to have to have, you know, more limitations. You know, I think that that's just a, I don't know what to say about it other than I think I'm, I think that's a really um, insightful point that I'm sure other people will relate to also, you know, or even like, you know, I've had the thought like, you know, when my husband and I got married, I had had rheumatoid arthritis for uh, nine years at that time. Like we both thought we knew like, you know, the sickness and health, like, okay, generally like speaking, this is a disease that's going to go up and down. And, you know, but we didn't have any idea how big the ups and downs would be. We were maybe a little optimistic. So anyway, I felt like I've almost done this. I've had these kind of, I don't even think I've ever really said it to him, but like, I've had guilt at times. Like he didn't, he didn't necessarily sign up for everything he's ended up having to do you know, as my spouse with my health issues, but at the same time, no one knows, right? Like every, anyone we know today, like your spouse or my spouse, anyone could get in a car accident or, you know, um, have a health issue just come up out of nowhere. So that kind of helps remind me sometimes that, you know, you can't, no one can guarantee anyone's health. So yeah, definitely. And I think with conditions like autoimmune diseases, they're so unpredictable, aren't they? That they can yeah. be fine and they can crop up out of nowhere and then they can be angry and yeah. You know, I remind myself too, like I have a little mantras that I tell myself and one of them is like, my son needs me to be present, not perfect. Like, you oh, know, I like that. Yeah, really that, I mean, and I, this is also, and I mentioned this a different episode. I'm sorry, this is like way too like, um, out there, but I, I minored in anthropology and I found it really fascinating, like studying different cultures and the history and it remind studying anthropology reminded me of like, you know, how our modern world and the expectations we have of like parenting, what children need, a lot of children need, you know, safety, they, they, or they seek safety, right. For their survival, but they, you know, in for, throughout most of history, millions of years, there wasn't this idea that a parent has to sit there and be like perfectly there for their child's every need. That's a very, very modern idea that's literally only existed for like 40 to 50 years, maybe Mm -hmm. 50, 60 years. So I also, again, maybe this is just me justifying it, but I remind myself that like, you know, for most of history, like this, the four-year-old would be like taking care of the little ones, you know, life was much harder for, for children just due to the circumstances of, you know, shorter lifespan diseases, you know, safety, the life, you know, for most children through all of history. So when, even if we have rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, our children have still historically have like hit the jackpot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think also we sort of, we undermine some of the things that we do. Like, so at the dinner table every night, me and my family say one thing that we've really enjoyed that day or one thing we're Mm -hmm. grateful of. Mm -hmm. And my daughter always says the most like simple, tiny things that they always shock me. You know, sometimes we'll have like literally done a day trip and she doesn't bring that up. It'll be that we all sang Old MacDonald in the car, you know, (laughs) something so simple. And I think we sometimes forget, don't we, that they're the things that actually do make a big impact with our kids and you haven't got to be all singing or dancing and you know active and doing all these things you know that just you being present is something that and even for such a short amount of time you know sometimes I'll literally play with play-doh with her for 10 minutes at the table and then say mommy's yeah. got to go do her things now and that made such an impact in her day we drove to the the drive-through takeaway so I had my husband have my son 
and me and her literally went and got a, a, I got her a kids hot chocolate and myself a coffee and we sat in the car park in my car and she came into the front seat and we sat there for like 20 minutes and she always calls them have a little talk she's like mommy let's have a little talk so we just talked about like our day and we played I Spy and we went home and she had like the best time it was like I'd taken her to a theme park for the day you know yeah. and it was completely within my limits of not only the pandemic but also like the fact that I'm having a bit of a flare and everything's a bit more difficult yeah. um yeah and it made me feel really good that I was still able to do things that make me a good parent and that she will remember when she's an adult I hope you know oh a hundred percent a hundred percent that's so the same even my son loves I'm thinking of an animal and it's like the guessing game we just call it you know I'm thinking of an animal and um and yeah, I have to remind myself of that so much that he, you know, he doesn't, yeah, we've gone to, you know, Disneyland and Legoland. And of course he remembers those things. We actually went to Legoland in England, <laughs> the oh, one Legoland it's Windsor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was so fun. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he's been to Iceland, England, Scotland, you know, and of course his, yeah, his favorite things are like playing a board game, you know, with the family playing football you know American football we just have a little nerf one that we throw back and forth that's actually what he his school now they have him do like you know on Monday morning they write a little thing like what did I do this weekend you know and he's like I played football with mom you know and it's like oh so so I I hope that that's a comforting thought to other people who might be worrying about yeah I know I get a lot of questions from people who are worrying about even having one child biologically yeah or even with a surrogate you know there's still like actually it's something that we thought about potentially using a surrogate but it's like that the pregnancy wasn't the hard part for me I mean the postpartum was hard and a surrogate would get rid of the postpartum flare-up but it would still be the physical demands of taking care of, you know, other child and stuff. Anyway, oh, I was going to ask, have you explained like a, a question I get a lot is like, how do you explain to your child about your condition? Like, have you read a book to her? Not, not the four month old because the four month old <laughs> doesn't need to know, but you know, to your four year old, have you had like an explicit conversation or is it more general? Like, Oh, mommy has a little owie today. It's kind of more general, but she, we use the word, we use the term arthritis and I do mm-hmm. sort of explain to her like mummy's knee hurts or, you know, and it's just more like in daily conversation. It's actually quite sweet. She goes to a preschool, but she also goes to like a home daycare just to extend for my working and runs it has arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. And when I picked her up, um, she said that Harper had actually been talking to her daughter. So her daughter's a bit older. She's like 12. 12 and it said something about her mum's arthritis and apparently Harvey was like my mummy has arthritis too and and they had a little conversation about how she's like mummy's mom can't sit on the floor with me and mummy's knee hurts and and it almost made me cry that she'd internalized that she, you know, she really understood that it was part of our family and our family dynamic and but I also really liked it because obviously it's, it's kind of a rare condition so it was really nice mm-hmm. that for her to meet another kid whose mum also has it to kind of like normalize it a bit I guess so like maybe it's like that all mums have like you know when you're four that's kind of how your brain works mm-hmm. isn't it so yeah so she definitely understands it and she's very empathetic you know sometimes she'll ask me to play and I'll say oh, mummy can't play and I won't even say why maybe some of the bad mood mummy can't play with you and she'll just like bring her toys up on the sofa because she understands it's because I can't get on the floor um mm-hmm. yeah she's very good and I hope that she grows up just to be maybe a little bit more empathetic because she sees people with challenges and things and I hope Kit is the same as well totally. I think it's good to have open conversation about it and it just be normal it's just part of your family and it's just you know you just adapt 
Yeah. And I, I think I've talked about this before, but um, yeah, I, since I have worked, my past work was a lot with children with developmental disabilities or physical disabilities, like cerebral palsy or spinal cord injury or um, just developmental delays. Um, I, I, you know, even without having rheumatoid arthritis, I was really devoted in my mind to teaching my son that, yeah, not everyone's body is the same, you know, because I think it's really important as from a young age for them to have that kind of acceptance of disabilities and that empathy. And children are like naturally curious. You know, the first time we saw someone in a wheelchair, my son was obsessed with cars. Like his first word was car. When he was like 10 months old, he was like, car, car. Like literally then for three more years, it was all about cars, vehicles, dump trucks, excavators. And when the first time he saw a wheelchair, he was like, mom, this is the cool, like, why aren't, why don't we have one of these? Like you could wheel yourself. It's like a little car. Like he was just so <laughs> excited. And I had to be like, don't go up to the person and ask them to like have their wheelchair. But, um, he's like an electronic. So like someone with a, uh, who really couldn't move their body as much as someone in like a different kind of wheelchair, like a manual propelled wheelchair anyway. But the point is that, yeah, I, I think it's really important. I wonder, I don't know whether people like we talked earlier about how hard it was getting diagnosed because you imagine you assume your future is going to look a certain way, you know, but if children are taught from a younger age that like not everyone's body is guaranteed to work the same way forever, you know, maybe it wouldn't be such a blow. I mean, it would still be a blow. It would still have to emotionally process it, but it wouldn't be so shocking. Like, I just remember feeling I was relieved when I got my diagnosis because I had been so medically gaslit by saying that you're just anxious. Yeah. But I remember also being, I was very athletic. I, every day I would run. Um, I was played, I played soccer, football, um, and I was just really healthy. Like I didn't do drugs or anything else like that. I was very, very focused on like, you know, exercise and health. And so it just felt so unfair. Like, why did I get this? I did everything right, you know? But that is the randomness of life. Like there's this book called Fooled mm -hmm. by Randomness that I don't know, it's kind of sounds depressing, but it's actually pretty fascinating by Dan O'Reilly. And it's just like, you know, we all know this, right? Like there are people who, you know, smoke their whole lives, smoke cigarettes and never get lung cancer and like smoke until they're 90 years old. And then there's like people who've never smoked who get lung cancer when they're like 30. Like it doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, it's I just, totally yeah. get the feeling unfair because similarly, like I am really healthy. I have never smoked. I barely drink. And also like my, the, the, my grandparents and my parents have really good like longevity and they're mm -hmm. all healthy, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, my grandparents are in their eighties and they're still like yeah. very, like they're more mobile than I am basically sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I just think, what, like, why has this happened to me? Yeah, it's not fair. It's, and the thing is, it's just, mm -hmm. that's just not how it works. I was talking to a doctor, Michael Yu, and he was, he's a um, physician who also has, he has spondyloarthritis and he, uh, said that, you know, it's just at some point, it's just the genetics, genetics plus environment, like you, something in my genetics, right, made me probably susceptible to it, even though it didn't affect my grandparents or my parents either. I don't have any other family history, something in there, you know, something in the environment triggered, maybe something that didn't get triggered in your other family members. And it's out of your control, you know, but yeah, it's not fair. Like one thing I do find tough is sometimes half will ask me, why do I have arthritis? Uh, and I, yeah. that's a really hard question to answer. And 
I kind of give that a bit of a fob off answer because I don't really have an answer. You yeah. know, I'll just say, I don't know. Mummy's body just gets angry sometimes, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But equally, talking about genetics, something that is tough is the fear of your children getting what you've got. Yeah. That's yeah. literally my biggest, well, not my biggest, but it's one of my biggest fears. Yeah. So my, ironically, my husband has really bad psoriasis and mine's always been really mild. So I've always found it like ironic and kind of funny that I was the one that got the arthritis element added on top of yeah. mine. Yeah. But obviously, so we both have autoimmune issues. So it really worries me that my children could get autoimmune issues. And little things that sometimes half will say like, oh, my, my knee really hurts, mummy. And there's no oh, reason yeah. for it. And immediately my mind goes into overdrive. And, you know, kids do just get aches and pains sometimes. And, you know, it's touch would always been nothing. But, oh, my goodness, my heart, every time she says any part of her body hurts, my heart just like immediately goes into panic mode same um, same oh my gosh I took my I took Charlie to the doctor because he was really limping one day and it was when he was like one and a half or two so he couldn't really explain it and they figured out that he had a splinter <laughs> and that's why <laughs> but they were like no we're so glad you brought him in because you know like it earlier earlier detection is always important and it doesn't hurt to rule it out I I understand that exactly and you know I my doctor said that if you have like a rheumatic disease form of arthritis, um, you have your children have a double the chance of getting um, juvenile arthritis, but that still means it's it's two out of a hundred versus one out of a hundred. So it's still very yeah, it's rare, very low. You know, I did look at the stats like before we decided to have any more children, just because I thought, I don't know, I just wanted to educate myself a bit more. Like, what is the yeah. risk of this? Like, yeah. Someone asked me the other day, did you ever think about not having children because you didn't want to pass it on? And I never for one second thought about that. Like, I don't know, did, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just, that was just my honest answer. Like, no, because even though it's difficult, it didn't seem to be something that I would, it's not deadly, right? It's not like, it's not something that, that you can't cope with. And so to mm-hmm. me, it just didn't, even though and my disease was in a lot better place before I got pregnant, but it did not even cross my mind to, to consider not having a child specifically due to the child potentially having arthritis. Yeah. So I really briefly considered it. But then when I saw the statistics were really low, I thought this is fine. Like, you know, it's not, I'm not like going to definitely pass it on. I think if they had been yeah, I had a higher statistic, I potentially would have maybe not had more children. I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? I'm just glad it's not that high and that, you know, hopefully yeah. my children can can be healthy and can not have the dodgy genes that me and their dad have. So. <laughs> oh my God. I, I wanted to mention, um, I don't know, do you follow Mariah Leach from Mama's Facing Forward? No, I don't think okay. I do. So uh, just, just in case people listening are looking for more resources, I'll put this in the show notes, but she is a mom that has just three kids and she has rheumatoid arthritis. She had it before her first. Um, and she started this website. She got a grant to start a website that was just full of valid information about pregnancy, breastfeeding, parenting. And I have actually written some guest articles um, from the OT occupational therapy perspective or like life hacks for changing baby's diapers and ergonomics and stuff like that. But she has a, she's done some great um, book reviews. So she has reviews on children's books for children about a parent that has a disability or, you know, not books for children about other children that have disabilities. Cause there's a ton of those books. There's not as many books for children about like mommy, like why does mommy hurt? I think that's one of the um, books. So 
I can link to those because that's something I recommend to people a lot is like, you know, children learn through stories, they learn through books. And so, you know, and I've, I've, you know, I've told my son, yeah, at first it was just mommy has an owie, you know, mommy has an owie in her hands and then mommy has an owie in her neck and hands. And then also her bottom, like my tailbone. And so he was just like, where does mommy not have an owie? You know, <laughs> um, well, that sounds really good. Cause I've never been able to find any books that were about yeah. parents. So I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Just add that to the to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> the never ending to-do list. Um, but do you have any advice for other people with, um, psoriatic arthritis who might be thinking about having children, um, something that they should maybe consider or something that helped you? I think, oh, it's really tough, isn't it? Cause it's, cause it's so unpredictable. It's really hard to plan for and prepare for. And I remember I looked on the versus arthritis page before I started trying and it talked a lot about like making sure you've got this support network and a plan in place for if you have a big flare and my family don't live local and it, I remember it really stressed me out because I thought well I, I can't do that I can't have this plan of people to rally around me if if everything does go terribly yeah. um, but I think my best advice would be um, about with your partner like giving your expectations now it was easier for me because I'd already had Harper so I kind of knew roughly like what postpartum was going to look like and so when I had Harper no offense to my husband I pretty much did everything and part yeah. of that was me being so stubborn and me being thinking that it was my role and I should do it all and and I found it challenging even you know not having a chronic illness so before we had Kit and before we even started trying for another baby I just sort of really explained the things that I would need him to help with you know that I will need him to help with the nights and if I'm flaring could he take time off work and you know all these things and it was obviously a very practical plan but the most beneficial part of it was that it made me not feel so anxious about you know I sort of basically explored yes. the worst case scenario and what we would do in the worst case scenario right, right yeah and I think that was good and he you know he's very good he helps a lot with Kit and he sort of knows my capabilities and what I, I struggle with and he definitely has stepped into that role which is great I, I think that's really really good advice having a really honest conversation like you said and like I think my husband's an engineer and so what we ended up doing is it's, we had to really like break it down like to say okay like it, we he's a, a, a night owl or he stays up late and I'm like my circadian rhythm is like early to bed early to rise and so we one of the things we did to get me more sleep and rest and recovery is that he took like a shift with the baby every night which was a lot easier once I stopped breastfeeding because I didn't have to worry about like pumping or feeding but um like from 7 p.m to 11 p.m he would for sure take care of the baby so I could like get four hours in a row of good sleep. And then the rest of the night I would take care whenever the baby, you know, whenever Charlie woke up. Um, so those are like the early days when they're still waking up a lot, you know, but that really helped like those little, like logistical plans. Like, you know, you have to kind of think through all the things that you could potentially need help with, like the bottles, you know, so if you switch to bottles, your spouse might have to help more with that. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. Or, and if you don't have a partner, you know, I know there's people who are like single parents by choice or not by choice, you know, having that greater support system, which I know has been so hard during the pandemic because you might've mm -hmm. planned a support system and then no one's allowed to see each other. And so it's, it's definitely a difficult time right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, anything else that we haven't, that I haven't asked about that you wanted to share with the audience, you know, about 
living with psoriatic arthritis or about parenting and pregnancy or just anything else? No, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I feel like I've just absolutely rambled about everything. Oh, no, 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 no. You've been perfect. Your honesty is, is so um, appreciated because again, it's, it's hard to open up about this stuff, especially you're still in the thick of it. You have a four-year-old and a four-month-old. I mean, gosh, you know, and I know that we were first started talking about doing an episode while you were pregnant, actually. I know. Time just goes so quickly, doesn't it? it? Just, it's crazy. It really, it like, really. Does. My son was four months old yesterday, and I just can't believe it. I feel like he literally was born like a week ago. <laughs> well, and I feel like I really liked this idea of the fourth trimester, like those first three months. You know, mm-hmm. my understanding is that if it wasn't for our hips not being big enough, the baby would keep growing for three more months kind of thing. So the baby's not quite ready to be out of the womb. And I feel like I remember it really felt like a switch flipped when Charlie was like three months or done with three months, kind of turned four months. It was like, he just became so much more alert. He smiled. It was easier to connect to him. Where can people find you if they want to connect to you on social media? Um, So I have an Instagram account, which is at mama bears squares with mm-hmm. um full stops so mama dot bears dot squares mm-hmm. um and i i'm sometimes very active on there and then other times i'm completely not active so especially mm-hmm. since having the baby it just yeah. um, it's oh, definitely taking yeah. a bit of a back seat for now but um yeah like i my message is always open i love connecting on there with people with um arthritis it's been such a incredible support system for me but when I first got diagnosed I actually funny enough I have a second cousin with rheumatoid arthritis um yeah so perhaps mine is more like genetic I don't know but apart from her I didn't know anybody else and I didn't even know she had it until I started going through my diagnosis so it's been amazing for connecting with people especially of like a similar age or going through similar journeys Um, and it can be really inspiring too. like when you're having a down time to see somebody who's like, you know, really living their life and you think, so it is achievable. Like I can get to mm-hmm. that. Like I can work and it can be good. It can also be the opposite though. Actually, I find yeah. Facebook a bit more doom and gloom. When I first got diagnosed, I joined some Facebook groups oh, and I really wish I hadn't. They made dangerous. me so depressed. Um, just yeah. people who were, I, like, I remember once reading, I do not mean this to be insulting at all, but I remember reading about a woman of similar age to me and she put how she'd done 30 minutes of gardening and how she was so proud of herself, but she knew that she'd suffer for it tomorrow. And like, as a mother of a two-year-old, I thought, I can't have the biggest thing I can do in 24 hours be 30 minutes of gardening. Like my life is over. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it can be a blessing and a curse, I think, social media. And I think the thing with, with arthritis you know rheumatoid psoriatic is they they're so different from person to person mm-hmm. and I've seen that as well that sometimes you go looking for advice and it's really hard to get advice because everyone's advice is going to be so different because everyone's joint involvement is different their flares are different what helps them when they're having a flare is different and you know if there are so many kinds of medication I guess the reason is because it's not like you know when you've got something like I guess diabetes there is you have insulin and that yep. there's a certain amount and it, it does this and it does that whereas with arthritis it's not like that it's everyone's immune system is so unique and so different yeah so I think again it's hard to to see someone else's story and compare it to your own because it's not going to be the same it's extremely extremely confusing and I 
it only has been, you know, I've had this for 18 years. So I've done a lot of additional, you know, learning through my occupational therapy degree, but also talking to other, you know, providers um, and rheumatologists. And it takes a long time to understand, you know, why it's so important for the solutions or the treatment plans to be individualized. Like if you listened to the episode with Dr. Yu and the episode with Dr. Wada, they both talked about, you know, alternative medicines and other paths and that it's not like there's one diet or one supplement that works for everyone because you have to say, okay, how severe is your disease? How long have you lived with it? What's your history in terms of what other medications did you respond to? What other comorbidities do you have? What's your age? Like it's so complex, mm-hmm. but when you go on these groups, everything, everyone's just looking for what's the one thing, like, what did you, like, I see it every single day. What's the diet, what's the supplement, you know? And then, and then you'll see these anecdotes and you're like, oh my gosh, well, the vegan diet worked for one person. And then someone else is like keto, which is like the opposite of vegan. Right. And they're both valid. They're just, well, they're valid mm-hmm. experiences. There is more evidence for like plant-based than there is for a keto, just for the record. But then the day it, you as a patient, kind of don't, I mean, I kind of don't care if 99% of people respond better to one intervention, but I'm in the 1% that doesn't, then I don't really care about the other one for me. I just want to know what's going to work for me. But I I think it's so important to go tread with caution on the Facebook groups with the, I just yesterday also on somebody posted the same person, poor person, they posted on a Facebook group and Reddit the same post. And I happened to see both of them. (laughs) The algorithm was like, you need to see this. Um, And the person (laughs) just felt like they were like, they were, I think 29 or 31. And they, they said, I feel like I've just received a death sentence. And again, that is valid emotion to feel. Um, but it was, it was actually really heartening to see a lot of people rallying behind this person. And some of them were giving a little bit of truth bombs, like, dude, chill out for a second. We don't know for sure you're going to be okay. But like, this is not a death sentence. Like there are lots of treatments. And that's how I felt when I got diagnosed though. Yeah. I think yeah. so when you see the word progressive, it's, it's a frightening word. Yeah, and actually, one of the uh, physiotherapists who specialized in rheumatoid arthritis that I spoke to in the early stages of my diagnosis says he wished that they would get rid of that now. He was like, it used to be a progressive illness because there weren't enough treatments for it. And, you know, he's, he was saying how, so he did um, hydrotherapy. I was doing a hydrotherapy session. He said, you know, when he very first started working, he would literally have the rheumatoid arthritis patients literally wheeled to yeah, physio. Yeah. Like, did, they were deformed, they were immobile, and they'd sort of be like hoisted into the pool. And he was like, it's so different now. You know, people, because of biologics, people don't have that, you know, outcome oh. anymore, or it's very rare. And so he kind of was saying he really wished that like the NHS definition, which we're always told to go to in the UK, it's always like the right one. They would take the word progressive out of it because it's not obviously it is still progressive, but not not such a big way, you know? Yeah, I think the way that I try to help me people make sense of that is I say if it is not controlled, it is progressive. But there yeah. are so many ways to control it now through primarily medications. Also for some people, lifestyle changes are enough depending on how severe your disease is. But yeah, it is. I think it's important though, for people who are scared of medication to understand that it's progressive if you don't treat it, because uh, I hope it helps them get over that hump of their fear of medications, because I understand that it's scary to take a medication that has a known side effect, but the disease itself uncontrolled is scary also. So yeah, people who've worked in the field a long time, they can, they, like you're saying with your physiotherapist, that historical understanding, I think is so important because in the modern era, people a lot of times are scared of the medications 
and they don't realize how lucky we are to have them. Again, I mm. understand that there are some real side effects for people. I mean, I'm a little biased because I've, you know, I've taken three different biologics. I'm on my third biologic now, plus two other medications, you know, including methotrexate and it works for me, you know, and I don't have a lot of side effects, but, um, I was going to say when, my, when I was first diagnosed, my mom, I had no idea about the story, but I was diagnosed when I was 20. I was a junior in college about to join, do my senior year at university. I was going to school in New York and I got diagnosed in Seattle during my summer break. And my mom said, um, that she, they had told her, you know, you're going to have to inject this medication and my mom said, well, can you just, can we just wait? a year till she moves back like why do, does she really have to do this now like does she have to take, and she, my mom wasn't like against the medication she just thought this seems like a lot of hassle she has to like go every month and get this medication and get a little refrigerator for her dorm room so that it's refrigerated and the woman said she said I have seen people get up out of their wheelchairs after living you know being in a wheelchair from rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years they've taken this medication and in three months they're out of a wheelchair and they're like running and like she's like your daughter you cannot play around with this like you have to take this medication right now and my mom was so grateful to that person for like reinforcing that to her like this is not just arthritis this is something that will progress if you don't control it but I, I agree I think it should be explained that it kind of should kind of have a caveat like it is progressive if not controlled fortunately nowadays there are many valid ways to control it or something like that I don't know how to put that yeah no I agree terms. so some people can control it really well with like holistic alternatives mm-hmm. but I think other people can't and you yeah you it's not really something you want to play with and you know lots of people like when I got told I'd have to take medication forever I really didn't want to like it's a horrible yeah. thing to have to, especially when you're young you know yeah I went from you know, stubbornly, like not even wanting to take paracetamol when I had a headache to literally mm-hmm. being on drugs forever. It's funny because I said, I said to my rheumatologist before I went on the medication, I said, well, I have to be on this forever. And she said, oh, we don't like to use the term forever. We use the term long term. And I was like, <laughs> basically, yeah. <laughs> you want to put lipstick on a pig, right? Okay. I know. Um, one of the nuances is that, you know, if you're, you get the disease under control early, and aggressively now that the likelihood of going into remission and being able to wean off the medications is much higher. So many people who are on the drugs for, you know, even 10, 15 years, when you, if you're in medicated remission, you can then wean slowly down on your dosage and see whether you can go off of it, you know? So that's a really exciting possibility. Also like, we don't know what the future holds, do we? I mean, like, I think it's quite exciting that like, you know, in our lifetime, there might be another big breakthrough. There might even be a cure, who knows? So I'm always optimistic like that. I'm always thinking it it might not be forever. And I guess maybe that's why my rheumatologist did use the term long-term, even though like it is, it did make me laugh when she said it. Um, Because I guess you don't know, do you? Like it's, yeah, science is developing every day. And obviously there is quite a lot going into um, arthritis, especially now with the pandemic, actually. Perhaps something that they're doing might make a bit of a breakthrough in the next sort of wave of medication. I, I really hope that that happens. Yeah. And I, of course, we're all, you know, hopeful that there'll be a cure so that we don't have to stay, you know, on these medications. But it is really good to know that, some people, you know, I guess I would be example of that can stay on, you know, I've been on these medications for 18 years. That's what I was saying to the person who was freaking out, you know, cause they said, kept saying you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, because if you take the medication, you're going to get liver cancer and like, 
And then if you don't take the medication, the disease is going to get you. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, you know, you're, con- you're considering only the negative possibilities, which may happen, but you're not considering the positive possibilities, which is you could take this medication and have no side effects and control your disease and feel good. Like, but it's kind of human nature, right? When you're in that, and it's, totally, yeah. again, it's valid to go through the freak out period. I'm glad you mentioned that though, that the social media, because I, I do, that is a passion of mine to tell people, you know, like be really careful which groups you go on and which stories you, you know, hear. Cause that was something I always tell people is, you know, when I was in Medicaid remission, I wasn't on any groups and I wasn't talking about rheumatoid arthritis because it wasn't affecting my life. I was just living my life. Like I was just going to the doctor every three months and getting blood work done. And then just, you know, I was running, I was running, you know, five K's and I was playing soccer and I was swing dancing and I was feeling good. So people who were in the group. Someone said that exact same thing to me. Yeah. That when you're when you're when things are good, you're not on social media because you're living your life. Yeah. And that was very eye-opening for me. That the people that mm. not always, but sometimes some of those groups is the ones that are really struggling and they're lonely, so therefore they're on social media a lot. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something to bear in mind. Well, thank you so much. I'm I just want to make sure that I give you time to go get speaking of children earlier, that you have to get your four-year-old um pick them up. But is is there anything else that you wanted to say now that we've kind of gone on some other side topics? No, I don't think so. Just oh, thank good. you so much for having me. And it's been so nice to meet you over video. <laughs> I know it's funny because we've chatted on on social media, but yeah, this is our first time actually talking in r- real time. And I've just, yeah, it's been really a pleasure talking to you. And I really know that everyone listening is going to just resonate with what you're saying. And so I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, a membership and support community where you'll learn how to develop your own Thrive toolbox so you can live a full life despite your rheumatic disease or chronic illness. Learn more in the show notes or by going to www.myarthritislife.net. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.